Good morning, Trent Vineyard. Good morning, Trent Vineyard. Amen. I'm deliciously delighted to be here today at the Trent Vineyard. Would you join me in also thanking God for our pastor's uh, team right here. Let's give God praise for them. Amen. They and their team have just um, 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 poured out the uh, carpet of uh, Christian hospitality, and I'm so happy that, um, to be here on today. They told me to make sure I felt at home on today, and so I'm very used to preaching being more so a dialogue than a monologue. Amen. So I'm used to people saying amen. So if you love the Lord Jesus, can you just give God some praise in this place? I think I'll preach a little bit better if God is in this place. Amen. And but one of my favorite types of artwork is called anamorphic paintings. Some of you all may not necessarily know the name, but you know the concept. An anamorphic painting is when the artist inserts an object beneath the object that you immediately see. So an anamorphic painting really has two objects. There is the surface object, and then there's an object that is situated beneath the object that you immediately see. They're called anamorphic paintings. So if you would stand at a particular angle and you'd be able to stare long enough, chances are you'd be able to see the object that is beneath the object. So oftentimes I walk into art galleries or I'll walk into a particular store and I'll ask uh, the manager or the attendee, I'll say, um, I can't see it. And without fail, the attendant will always say to me, look closer. I want us to kind of today look at our lives as God's anamorphic paintings. That's what I want to do today because, you know, when we, all of us sin and we fall short of the glory of God. And there are sins that are easily able to detect on the surface, sins like greed and, and lust and, and gluttony and all of that. But, but all of these sins really stem from another particular sin, and that is the sin of pride. G.K. Chesterton, the great English writer, said, if I had one sermon to preach, I would preach against pride, because pride is of paramount importance, so much so that the great C.S. Lewis, in the moving passage in his book, Mere Christianity, really compares pride to other sins. And he says this, he says, pride, he says, other sins are merely flea bites in comparison with pride. That Lewis calls pride the, the greatest sin. And what makes pride so dangerous is that oftentimes, it's easy to detect in others, but oftentimes it's harder to detect in ourselves. And so that's what I want to do today. I want to encourage us, like that um, attendant or the manager told me to do, I want to encourage us and our own lives to look closer. And that's what I want to talk about today, looking closer, peeping out pride. Now, I need your prayers because I believe I'm here with with family, I just got word that uh, one of my cousins over in the States has been rushed to um, the hospital. Her name is Arnett, and I want to um, pray for her just briefly, and I want to pray for the Holy Spirit's presence on the day. God, I love you, and I bless you, and I praise you, and I magnify your name. I pray now, right now, for my cousin. I pray, Lord, that you would visit her in the hospital right now. We pray, Lord, for healing. We pray for the blood pressure to come down. I pray also because I confess before all these people, I need you, can't do anything without you. So stand up in me, that none of me be seen, but all of Christ exalted. If you choose to save anybody, renew anybody, restore anybody, I will not take any credit for it. 
give you all glory, honor, and praise. In the righteous, ruling, and rich name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Nestled within the depths of the New Testament is a parable Luke records, um, where Jesus talks about, about a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go to the temple to pray. Time will not permit for me to read the text, but in this parable, Jesus compares and he contrasts pride with humility. And that's what I want to do today. I want to talk about pride. I want to compare and contrast it with the virtue of humility. So let me begin by talking about what pride is, or better yet, what pride is, is not. First of all, pride is not necessarily taking pleasure in being praised. For example, a child that's patted on the back for doing a lesson well or making a good play. Or the wife, or, or the wife um, whose beauty is praised by her husband or maybe a girlfriend by her boyfriend or maybe the steadfast believer to whom Christ says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Finding pleasure and taking delight in being recognized is not necessarily pride. In fact, I would suggest that all of us appreciate uh, receiving some type of recognition at, least, recognition, at least to a certain degree. A mentor of mine once gave me some advice in receiving uh, um, praise or recognition, and I want to pass it on to you. He said, uh, uh, Charles, uh, receiving recognition is kind of like chewing gum. You can chew it safely just for a few moments, but whatever you do, don't swallow it. <laughs> Nor is pride and admiration of another's accomplishments. That when we tell somebody, I'm proud of you for doing something noteworthy, or our team wins a championship, we, well, we, we're prideful, if you will, in our, in our country. What we're not necessarily talking about is something that is un, unbiblical. What we're really saying is that we have a warm-hearted admiration for these people or these things. That's not the type of pride the Bible condemns. Nor is it having a healthy sense of self-love. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. But then he said the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, friends, when the Scripture tells us to love ourselves, it means we have a due regard for the faith of our own nature and for the welfare of our own bodies because we are made in the image of of God. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. That we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That when God created you, God stepped back and he said, oh, that's good. You know, when God created me, he had me and he dipped my soul in milk chocolate. He had to step back and say, my God, that's sweet. <laughs> Here's what I'm trying to tell you. None of these are the type of pride the Bible condemns. But if you and I would look closer, we discover the type of pride the Scripture condemns. It's something called hubris. Let the church say hubris. hubris. Yeah, hubris can be defined as an unholy preoccupation with self. It's when we consciously or, uh, or unconsciously make ourselves the center of the universe. See, it's one thing to say, I'm proud of my children. Another reason to say that the reason why they're so great is because I'm a great parent. <laughs> it's one thing to receive a compliment, but it's another thing to believe our own press. It's one thing to have a healthy sense of self-love, but, but it's another thing for us to think more highly of ourselves than others. I think of the great 
Muhammad Ali, the uh, American boxer. You know anything about Ali? He had a very high view of himself. One day he was on a flight, and um, was, while he was on the flight, um, he, the flight attendant, um, noticing that he didn't have a seatbelt on, uh, whispered in his ear because the flight was hitting some turbulence, and she whispered in his ear, sir, please put on your seatbelt. Ali said, you know, well, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Flight attendant said, yeah, that's right, but Superman don't need a plane to fly either. <laughs> that's what hubris does. It makes us feel as though we're super, as if we have no limits. That, 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 that's what pride does. Pride makes us say, I got this, that I can handle this temptation, that I can handle this relationship. If I'm married, I can handle being in a chat room with somebody that's not my spouse. After all, it's just a casual flirtation. And pride says I can do multiple things at multiple times. I can juggle 14,000 balls in the air until I eventually burn out. Why? Because I did not honor my boundaries. I did not respect my, my, my limitations that I cannot do the infinite because the reality is I'm finite. Pride makes us think that we can do more than we should and fly higher than we ought. But look closely at what the Bible says about pride. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with, with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. You see, the problem with pride is if we're not careful, it can deceive us into believing that we're so high that we're higher than God, God's self. That I don't have to respect God-given boundaries. God says don't have sex outside of marriage. I don't care about that. God says don't marry or date outside of my faith. It doesn't apply to me. The pride, pride can make us think that we can push God off the podium and assert my will over God's will. But here's the question. Why do we do that? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because the downward gravitational pull of our life is in the pride. It's just our fallen condition. It's endemic to uh, our fallen humanity. And I think I ought to tell you that pride has been with us for a long time. Oh, come on, Bible scholars, in the beginning, when God created the heavens, and the earth, Satan swaggers into the Garden of Eden. And he tempts Eve and Adam to sin. Do you remember what the temptation was? On the surface, some of us might remember to eat the forbidden fruit, and that's true. But look a little bit closer. Over in Genesis 3, chapter 5, this is what Satan says. And you will be like God. Be able if you were to call your own shots, because that's what pride does. It deceives us into believing that we can turn the tables on God, that we can knock God off the podium and put ourselves as creature in place of a creator. You see, pride is the gateway to every other sin. And the reason why Satan can exploit it is because it's in our nature. But not only is it in our nature, it's also in our culture. 
The text says that the parable, uh, that Jesus tells the parable rather, to those who are confident of their own righteousness. You see, Jesus didn't have to go far or look far to find them, perhaps because they were products of the culture, a culture where pride or the preoccupation with self is pervasive. And might I suggest, just like in Jesus' day, in our day and time, we live in a culture where pride is pervasive. pervasive. In fact, you don't have to look far to see it. Okay, you all don't believe me. Uh, 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 what is a selfie? <laughs> but an advertisement to say, look at me. What is a profile page on LinkedIn or social media but an opportunity to say, look at me? Here's what I'm trying to birth in your spirit. It's in our culture. A culture that says, look at me. And the challenge of our culture is that we have created a soil where excessive pride can grow. And listen, we're raising a generation that craves the admiration and the affirmation of others. But I see some young people here, maybe you're looking online. Let me share something to you. The admiration of people can never affirm the calling and the purpose of God on your life. And you don't need to crave the admiration of others to walk in your call. And let me tell you why that's a word. Because they and the rest of us live in a world, watch this, that is shaped by social media. Don't get me wrong, social media can be destructive or constructive, but can I tell you why it feeds our pride? Two ways, and I'll move to the next emphasis of the text. Number one, in the world of social media, it always has us chasing celebrity instantaneous and unmerited celebrity status. Listen, you can be a celebrity without one ounce of talent. You can be well-known without achieving anything, have thousands of followers, having never made a positive contribution to society. And as a result, there are those who are always seeking their celebrity status, chasing down followers, doing whatever it takes to get likes and, and retweets. We chase celebrity. But here's a second detrimental effect. Pride continually compares. Social media puts you and I in a realm where we're always looking at the snapshot of somebody else's life and comparing ourselves to it. Look at how many followers he has. Look at how many tweets she gets. And whether it's subconsciously or, or unconsciously, or consciously, I should say, we are always comparing ourselves with the lives of somebody else. The Word of God, though, teaches us it's, why, it's unwise to compare yourself to others. Can I remind you why? Because in the world of social media, they have something called filters. If you don't know what a filter is, it's exactly what it, what it sounds like. It filters and it makes things look better. Filters make someone prettier than they already are. Filters hide a whole lot of flaws. Make something glamorous that really may have been ugly. So here you are looking at a filtered picture and comparing your life to it. 
And I came across the pond to tell you, be careful. Comparing your life to somebody else's filtered experience. Because listen, at the end of the day, everybody got some ugly. Everybody has some struggles. But here's the tragedy of the text. The Pharisee doesn't even recognize the ugly in himself. Because hear me, pride deceives. In the parable, the Pharisee is comparing himself to others, believing that God is going to bless his prideful prayer. Look at what he says. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So look, look at this. He's enumerating his merits. It's almost as if he's praying and he's giving his track record to God. But can I ask you a question? Have you ever done that? God, I'm not your best servant but I'm proud of what I've done and what I haven't done. God, we're coming out of COVID and I'm doing my best to get to church and when I'm not physically here, I worship online. I even started to volunteer again in the church. And God, I'm deliberately trying in my marriage, even though some days are harder than others, don't look at anybody else, just keep looking at me. I try not to date outside my faith. Lord, I even stopped partying, and now I go to church. God, I'm even nice to people I don't even like. That's what this Pharisee is doing. He's enumerating his merits, appealing to his own track record. But can I tell you why this is distasteful before God? Because at its base level, here's how that translates. God, after all I've done, after all, I've sacrificed and given up in light of my service and all of my effort. God, you owe me. We may not specifically say that, but let me ask you this morning to look closer. Have you ever bartered with God or tried to bargain with God in prayer? God, if I do this, you do that. Let me tell you why well, that's a dangerous prayer, to barter with God. Because again, if you're not careful, if God doesn't move how you want God to move, and when you want God to move, you may end up harboring resentment in your heart towards God. Can we be honest this morning? Have you ever been upset with God? Come on, it's just you and me. Have you ever shook your fist at God? You prayed to be healed, yet you're still dealing with sickness. You prayed for that job, but it went to somebody else. You prayed for your marriage, and your spouse still walked away and broke your heart. You prayed for a spouse, but you're still single, living in a, in a double bed. Lord, I prayed for my loved one to be healed, and they still died or passed away. Have you ever been angry with God? Because God didn't open the door. Don't get me wrong. I don't pretend to know all the nuances and the mysteries of why God answers prayers or chooses not to answer prayer. But here's what I do know. If there's bitterness in your heart towards God, chances are you're coming very close to the root of your problem. And might that problem be pride? 
God says to God, you owe me and you didn't pay up. It's an attempt to turn the tables on God, to push God off the podium and say, God, you are now my debtor and I am your creditor. That's what pride does. That's why I love the prayer of this tax collector. He doesn't come to God based on his merits, but he comes to God begging for his mercy. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not let's review my track record, but God, be merciful unto me. That, my friends, is a picture of humility. You see, humility always appeals to God's mercy. That, God, the only way I stand before you is in mercy that you don't owe me. But if the truth be told, God, I owe you. That's the type of prayer God answers. That's the posture God blesses. It's a posture of humility. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Humility is the virtue that is really the prescription for pride. John Stott put it like this, that if you and I want to move from the pattern of pride, then you and I have to learn how to practice humility. Let me give you three quick ways to practice it, and I'll be out of your way. If you want to practice humility, you ought to get in the habit of confessing and repenting. That's what this tax collector does. When he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's how the New International Version puts it, but let me bring it a little bit closer to home and look closer. When you read the original Greek of the text, it says this, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. That I am exhibit A, that when I look closer inside of me, God, you know and I know that I wrestle with pride. You see, church, I have a problem. And you have a problem. And all of God's children have a problem. And that problem is pride. So let me just stop for a moment. I like this. I feel like this sermon needs some vitamin A, some good old application. So will you just for the next few moments take a pop quiz with me? Don't get scared. I promise you if you're honest, we'll get an A. I want to ask you a series of, of questions. Just look inside of yourself. Question number one is this. Are you easily offended? Here's number two. Are you a people pleaser? Number three, are you timid? Because listen, timidity is actually a face of pride. Here's one of the ways you know that. Timid people don't really confront. Most of us don't like confrontation, but sometimes it's necessary. Listen, you can be humble and still confront because the humble person is more concerned about the other person's development rather than whether or not that person will like them. Conversely, the timid person is more concerned about them and being accepted by others than the other person's growth. See the pride? Four, do you find it hard to apologize? I mean, you know that you're wrong, but somehow the words, I'm sorry, never seem to make it out of your esophagus. <laughs> Instead, you say things like, I'm sorry you took it that way. Or, I'll try to do better next time. Friends, that's not an apology. You see, prideful people never admit I'm wrong. It takes an humble person to own the wrong and to openly confess to others and ask for forgiveness. Last question. 
Do you struggle with prayer? Howard Thurman puts it like this. Prayer is the expression of the soul's dependence on God. Don't miss this. At the core of prayer says, God, I need you. That I can't do this on my own. Conversely, every day Charles Montgomery spends in prayerlessness. It's pretty much me saying to God, I got this. That I can't do that, 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 that I can do this on my own. See the pride? And friends, if you say I don't struggle with any of these, I hate to tell you. You might struggle with pride. And maybe during prayer time, you need to confess and repent. Let me hurry. Let her be. Don't take yourself too seriously. Obviously, the Pharisee did as he elevated his self-importance. But here's the one I really want to get to. If you really want to practice humility, remember the example of Jesus. Because again, you and I can't do this on our own. Remember, pride is in our nature. Inherited from our first parents. That's why Paul says our hope is not in Adam. Our hope is in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our model for humility. And he made the choice to look beyond himself to meet our needs. That's what humility means. Thinking beyond ourselves for the good of others. So let me close by asking you a question. When was the last time you thought beyond yourself for the good of others? I want to challenge you this morning to look closer and ask yourself the question, how can I meet out pride? I want to suggest it's a good question to ask. For the one who exalts themselves, shall be humble, but the one who humbles himself or herself will be exalted. Would you stand? Would you stand?